This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 590 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, John Saporsky. Now, John began his tactical journey on a very academic route within the military. He then transitioned into the civilian law enforcement world, where he spent four years before transitioning out into the corporate world. What makes John's story very unique is he realized that there was a void in the world of transitions, whether it's out of the military or first responder professions, and the understanding of the skills and background that we have and how that can be applied to other areas of commerce. So we discuss a host of topics from his own journey to the work he does now with Law Enforcement Direct and everything in between. Before we get to that incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating this show gets elevates the podcast, making it easier for other people to find it. And this is a free library of now almost 600 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, John Saporsky. Enjoy. Well, John, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. James, thanks so much for having me. So as I love to open with, where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? Yeah, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, the metro Atlanta area. Beautiful. So I would love to start at the beginning of your chronological journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so I'm actually uh, a Georgia guy. I was born and raised around the metro Atlanta area and um, spent the majority of my time here. Uh, I did go to college in Alabama for a little bit and then came back and finished up my undergrad degree at um, a Georgia school, Georgia University. Um, I was a law enforcement officer here in the state of Georgia. Uh, and then uh, my wife and I and family actually moved to Canada for a brief bit and then back to the States. So we can jump into that a little bit later. Absolutely. So tell me, what did your parents do though? What, what kind of um, professions were you growing up around? Yeah. So my mom was a flight attendant for Delta and my dad's an architect in the Atlanta area. So no service background, but my grandfather was in the army and uh, family, uncles, aunts, cousins, brothers, uh, all in the, uh, the military, U.S. military. And, um, extended family and the law enforcement community as well, NYPD and uh, federal agencies as well. So, well, With your mom with the, the flight attendant role, what has been her observation of the airline industry through her career? Because when you look back, you know, especially like the 60s, 70s, you know, that was a very revered profession, whether you're a pilot, whether you were, you know, working, you know, as far as serving in the back, it was still very prestigious. Fast forward to 20 especially 20, like 18, 19, there seemed to be a bit of a turn. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Um, you know, what's funny is both my mother and my mother-in-law were both uh, flight attendants. 
in their careers. And, uh, and it's changed dramatically. I mean, the, the type of person that they, uh, target now for, for flight attendant, that role. Uh, but I've also have a, a good personal friend who's a, a flight attendant now as well. And, um, he is, uh, in the U S army, but also a flight attendant full time. So, um, it, and the stories that he tells, I mean, he, it was kind of cool. He just, uh, I guess his annual report came out and he went to three continents and 11 different countries and had several hundred flying hours and stuff. It was a pretty cool report to see, but it's one way to travel the globe for sure. And is he enjoying it now though? Because I mean, it seems like there are probably some great airlines to work for still, but it seems like, you know, obviously the, the kind of budget airlines have have probably changed the system a little bit and you see some of the kind of seemingly union busting going on as well with the pilots and flight attendants that's brought their salaries down too. Yeah, he actually um, works for Delta Airlines and loves his job. Absolutely loves his job. Um, and I'm a little bit preferential towards Delta myself, having my mom uh, being a former Delta employee and um, being from Atlanta, which is where Delta headquarters is as well. So, um, but he absolutely loves his job. And that's one of the things I tell him all the time is I admire how much he enjoys what he does, um, professionally. He, he we always knew he was going to be in the military. We always knew that. Um, and he's following his dream of doing that. And the other thing was, is he always loved to travel. Uh, and his dad was, uh, uh, still, I think he may have retired recently, but, uh, was a Delta employee as well for an entire career. So we knew exactly what, what my friend was going to do. Uh, and it's awesome to see somebody fully engaged with what they're passionate about. So, well, I just flew Delta two weeks ago. I went to California and they, what I love about them is why well, I adore, um, Virgin Atlantic, Richard Branson, you know, that mm. company. And they were, they're a lie. I think at one point, I think Virgin bought them. And I, if I'm not mistaken, then that, that, broke off again but regardless there's always been that partnership there which speaks i think volumes for uh, for delta itself that virgin atlantic would choose them to partner with yeah richard branson's uh an awesome individual i mean quite the character right yeah one day i'd love to get him on the show we'll see <laughs> oh that would be awesome I saw him in Gatwick Airport years and years ago, right when they were first, you know, starting their their airline, and uh, didn't get to talk to him then. I was just a passenger, but yeah, one day, one day we'll come full circle. Absolutely. Well, speaking of career aspirations, when you were in the high school age, what were you dreaming of becoming? You know, actually, uh, I'll date myself a little bit. I'm 37 years old, um, and when I was in high school, 9/11 happened. And so uh, a handful of my friends and I from, you know, the football team, the baseball team, just uh, friends from high school in general, we all decided we were going to join the military. And so um, my decision uh, and what I chose to do was go to the recruiter for the Marine Corps. And I wanted to be in the Marine Corps and officer of Marines. And so I actually um, I went uh, it, it's called delayed entry program, uh, with a 92 day option so that I can go, um, to college right after boot camp. But it was basically boot camp through the summer between your senior year of high school afterwards and in between your freshman year of college. And so, um, I ended up, um, not going to boot camp because I had the opportunity to go join the ROTC program for the, uh, for an opportunity at a scholarship. And so I actually went to school and that's what actually took me out of the state of Georgia uh, to Alabama, where I was um, an officer candidate for 
uh, and a uh, cadet there uh, in the ROTC program and then the PLC program and had the opportunity to go to Quantico, Virginia twice to officer candidate school and uh, went in 2004 and 2006 and made it a grand total of 10 and a half out of 12 weeks before uh, I injured my knee and was medically released from that program. So I never got to earn my commission uh, or serve our country in that capacity. But that is also what led me to law enforcement later on. So I'm thankful for the journey. Uh, wasn't sure where it was going to take me at the time, but certainly uh, was able to uh, adapt and pivot there. Now, speaking of that, so I, it's, it's been a crazy journey. My son is a, a freshman in high school and I'm still learning, you know, all these terms and these different years because I've got, you know, one biological son. I'm a bonus boy. Um, so I'm kind of navigating the American system as I, you know, transition through this parenting journey. Um, he was doing what was called HOPE, which is P.E. And he came to me, and this is so pertinent because I just did an interview about this, um, and said, Dad, I've decided to switch to JROTC because in PE, we're not doing any exercise. And I well, firstly, that blew my mind. But secondly, you know, we, I knew of the program. I didn't know anything about it. So he's been in there now. I think, I think he went in about a month after school started. They were able to transition over. And what an incredible program. Like I've just took a video. They had an award ceremony the other day, and just the unison that they're doing. You know, their um, I think chance is the wrong word, but you know, their their hoorah kind of um, oh, phrases yeah. that they have, and and the unity, and them cheering for every single person that was up there on stage, and you know, they've got the Raiders program, which is more kind of special ops focused, and uh, it's it's everything that I think a PE program should be. You know, and it's a shame that. Um, as one of my guests just had Doug Orchard talked about, he's the director of the the motivation factor. Um, that Pete nowadays fitness is reserved for the elite sport teams in high school, and obviously the ROTC or JROTC has an element of that too. So huge kind of monologue before the question, but what was your experience of? I know it wasn't JROTC, but of the ROTC program in general, and you know, is that something you think that should be? Um, should be educated on more and used more in the school setting as well. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And James, I I loved it personally. It fit my uh, fit what I was looking for. It it um, served a purpose and taught me a lot of lessons. But you know, the one thing that I took away from it was a sense of um, empowerment. Um, and the military, you know, and I think law enforcement does a good job of this as well. Uh, first responders in general does a good job of this as well, but it, it shows you what you're truly capable of and it stretches your abilities, like the limitations, uh, what you think you're capable of versus what you're actually capable of, you know, and uh, ask any military member and a lot of first responders, they push themselves past their normal, what they would consider their natural limits uh, to extraordinary feats. Um, but one thing that I actually took away from the military is I can't go on a run anymore without saying a cadence of some kind in my, you know, during my run, I'm, uh, saying something while I'm running. So I, I freaking, I love it. Now, what about the community element? Because as I was at this award ceremony with my little boy, we're in Ocala, Florida, which is central Florida, which kind of, you know, can be classes of South and there were all colors and creeds in this ROTC program, all wearing the same uniform, all cheering each other on, all, you know, some of all colors and creeds were, you know, academically like 4.0 and above and, you know, just all these different accolades. And it showed to me that community is about 
shared suffering. It's about standing side by side and being part of a team. What did you see about the community element in your ROTC experience? Yeah, you know, that's, it was an incredible opportunity for me to be part of a team. Um, and it was really, you know, even though I played sports growing up, all, all the sports, you know, all the, um, the baseballs and the footballs and the soccers and hockey and wrestling and everything. And, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me was the sense of camaraderie that just naturally existed. You prove yourself, but once you earn your spot, um, you know, you, you continue, you're held to a higher standard, but then by reaching that higher standard on a daily basis, you continue to earn your spot. And uh, just as first responders know as well, and the military uh, community knows, uh, this is more family and less friends. There's, it's not a friendly relationship; it's a family relationship. Um, and you know, even though I didn't commission, I still have friends that served their time in the Marine Corps uh, and have since retired, and we still keep in touch. And that was freshman year of college, uh, and just. Uh, it's a relationship or, or type of relationship that is almost just uh, super, supernatural almost. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it was, like I said, incredible to watch. Now you mentioned then obviously with the knee injury. So firstly, talk to me about the rehab from that. And then what took you into law enforcement? Yeah. So I actually injured my knee, uh, the first go round in 2004 and, uh, spent, you know, uh, I spent, the next 18 months really doing a lot of rehab and less running, more swimming. Uh, there was no running essentially. It was just a lot of time in the pool. Uh, and then had the opportunity to go back in 2006 and actually, um, re-injured my knee within the first two weeks and ran on it for another 10 days. And it, it just, it got bad. So, um, I wasn't able to continue in the program and, uh, was released from the program. And, um, one of my greatest regrets, and I'll share this with anybody who asks is, um, I chose when I was medically released, I was given the opportunity to, to come back. And at that point in time, uh, I was just mad at myself and mad at the situation. And I actually chose to not come back. Um, and so, you know, I spent the next several years, that was 2006, right. And I joined law enforcement in 2011, and so, um, I immediately almost, I mean, I signed the papers to not go back, right. Have the opportunity to go back and earn my commission. And it was almost immediate that I was sitting there going, what did I do? I've, I've worked since I was 16 years old, you know, mid teenage years and through my, uh, early twenties and, and now I'm not going back. I'm not going to ever be a Marine. And so that stuck with me for many, many years. And, um, and I still regret not ever going back and becoming a Marine. Um, but in another way, I had to pivot. I still had a gap in my psyche and in my desire to serve. And so I became a police officer, which was actually something that I hadn't ever considered until the Marine Corps didn't work out. Um, and I'm really glad that I did. I'm really glad that I did um, because the level of service allowed me to see another side of um, – you know, the other side of the coin rather, right. To put, uh, put myself in somebody else's shoes. Um, and where I was always getting the speeding tickets as a teenager, you know, now I was able to empathize and sympathize a little bit with what the, the citizen was actually probably dealing with, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis for sure. 
Now, I know you ended up on the SWAT team in a relatively short amount of time. So kind of walk me through your journey from the, their initial kind of orientation training through to joining that team. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was a police officer for four years and we had obviously a minimum time in service requirement um, that I had to to serve in a patrol capacity. And um, But as soon as I was capable, I tried out. And, um, we had about 20 people try out and there was only myself and one other guy who made it through tryouts. Um, and that was within two years. I think it was a two year minimum that you had to serve in a, uh, patrol capacity and then you could serve. So, um, I did, I served on the, the SWAT team that covers the North Fulton County area of Metro Atlanta. So we covered the top three cities of the, the county and, um, you know, I'm just, I'm a, I don't want to call myself a high performer, but I always strive for the best that I can possibly be. So I had my sight set on SWAT when I joined law enforcement from the get-go. Uh, I wanted to serve at my utmost capacity. So for me, um, being proactive and the other thing about it was the SWAT team was more or less uh, aligned with Marine Corps mentality, right? Where you, you, uh, you're a high performer, you are performing at uh, the highest level. And I believe I, the statistic was true when I was on the SWAT team, but they said 10% or less uh, of officers uh, will become a SWAT team member. Uh, and that just kind of the, um, not the prestige, but the the lack of ability or, you know, the, um, the few people, I guess, kind of to steal something from the Marine Corps, the few, the proud, right? Um, is what the Marine Corps says. And I wanted to be part of, of the few, you know, the high performing team. So that's what led me to the SWAT team. Now, what was it that you had physically and mentally that so many people that didn't make it didn't have? Well, yeah. And, and I, it's not that I could and they couldn't, it's just that I did and they didn't. Um, and it's just, it's this adapt mentality, uh, the agile mentality of simply trying to, um, but there is a level of, of grit and toughness along with it as well, uh, mental and physical toughness that, yeah, I mean, some things just suck and you got to, you just have to grind through, right? I mean, it just, it is what it is. It's not going to, um, it's not the end of the world. It's just, it's a little bit of pain. So, um, the, the PT test to get onto the team was pretty brutal and, um, that's where a lot of people failed. It wasn't the ability some it was, some most it wasn't. It was just their their mental toughness. Now, I always ask this to people in law enforcement. Again, I'm not. I'm a firefighter, but I feel the same way in the fire service too. You have this two tier um, kind of you know dynamic when it comes to law enforcement, especially you know, and, and all the people I had on here that are high level operators hold police and fire to the same level of themselves, and and rightly so. I mean, lives depend on what you did. Lives depend on what I did. Um, but you see this over and over again, whether it's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, whether it's departments in the US or the UK. And while my friend Dave is one of the armed policemen in um, London, held to a very high standard. The rest of the force, very, very low standard. What is what is your opinion of everyone being held to a high standard, regardless of if you're in a special ops team or not? I think the nature of the job would lead us to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Um, I don't... I, you know, I think there are certain things if, if 
you know, not picking on anybody in particular, but there are certain industries and categories of, of commerce that, you know, there is no expectation of high performance, um, in a certain regard of, um, I guess there's always a standard of ethics, but maybe not a standard of like personal ethics, as long as you get the job done ethically. Right. Um, I certainly don't want to rabbit trail down that one. That's a sticky, uh, sticky situation there. But, you know, one of the biggest things was, um, yeah, I, I think that's a great question just in regards to you're right. Uh, it's a high performer, low performer. It's kind of a binary almost. There's very few people who just perform middle, middle of the road. I mean, you get really great people, high performers that are proactive and then you get people who sit in a parking lot for their entire shift and respond to the calls that they're assigned. Yeah, I mean, just from from a fire service, we have a slightly different element because, you know, our special operations teams, depending on what it is, can be high performers. I mean, Orange County, one of my previous ones, that one of the spec ops teams climbs the, I don't think it's like a 300 foot tall Ferris wheel that we have in Orlando. You clearly have to be in good shape for that. The hazmat team, very, very slow, calculated, cerebral thing. You don't. So special operations here doesn't necessarily mean high performer physically. But when you look at what the regular firefighter, the regular EMT paramedic is required to do on a bad day, it's a high performer position. And it kills me that we don't have standards in most departments, you know, at the firefighter level and or higher up. But I think to me, if you're going to pin a badge to your chest, if you're on SWAT, beautiful. Now you're advanced in, in different weaponry and breaching, and but your fitness level should be the same whether you're a patrol officer or a SWAT member. Absolutely. And it should be prestigious. I mean, it, it shouldn't be. Unfortunately, um, in law enforcement, they've gotten into a predicament recently where it's kind of the warm body mentality. It's like, you know, 20 years ago or even maybe 15 or 10 years ago, it was, you know, you had to you probably had to wait years, potentially interview many times for the opportunity to become a police officer. Uh, and I know the true the same is true for fire service as well. Uh, those are extremely competitive positions. Whereas, you know, modern day with uh, even the great resignation and all that going on, uh, there's they're more or less like, can we just fill cars? Can we put people in cars, you know, and do they meet the minimum standard, not the ideal standard? Um, but, yeah, I am a huge proponent of everyone having to meet uh, a minimum standard and then a stretch, what we call in business a stretch goal. Right. I mean, you've got your goals and then you've got your stretch goals. Um, and I, it should be a proud and noble, uh, and it is a proud and noble profession that we should hold ourselves and each other to a, a higher standard. Absolutely. And I think this whole defund bullshit has created the exact opposite of what the intention was. And we're, we're creating an environment for people to be worse, you know, and we've got so many great people in uniform and a few rotten apples in every profession, but by taking money away. I mean, I, I think, for example, there should be two police officers to every single vehicle, you know, patrol vehicle. The thought of me trying to pull over someone who used to be a linebacker on my own is insanity, you know. So to have, you know, one person interact, one person cover that that officer, you know, cover the passenger, whatever it is, even from a layman firefighter who has no idea about law enforcement. I can see how freaking dangerous it is when there's just one person stopping a fully tinted out car that may have four armed people inside. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, 
you know, you, you're only putting officers at risk really when you're, um, when you're putting the wrong person on the road or putting the wrong person on shift. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of circumstances right now where they would love to, we would love to support the law enforcement, provide two to a car. Uh, unfortunately we've got an entirely, uh, oversized zone and too few people to cover the zone. So, um, so what do you do? But you're right. Defund the police was, um, it's not a good idea. That's, uh, not sure what they were thinking when they proposed that. Well, that's the problem. They weren't. They were just knee-jerking to a couple of, you know, tragic incidences that shouldn't have happened. But from, you know, one of my guests, Chad Lyman, he was talking about it. that when you look at, for example, the Chauvin case, he was tried exactly the, the way he should have been. It wasn't mismanaged at all. He absolutely abused the position, but he was treated the way anyone should have been treated in that situation. So the knee-jerk was, you know, completely kind of, disconnected from the actual outcome of that case which was it was a you know a heinous manslaughter case and the 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 person in question went to jail it's that simple yeah there's um you know one thing that i love about law enforcement is that when an officer does something illegal you know the profession itself will call you out for doing the wrong thing like you said your your initial plan was around six to eight so what was that kind of turning point that made you pull the trigger at four? Yeah, you know, it was that work-life balance. Uh, I was working a ton uh, between working on patrol, working on the SWAT team, between training and court. Um, you know, just uh, in addition, you know, law enforcement isn't the highest paid profession. So there, I was working overtime and extra jobs. And so just uh, trying to earn a, a decent wage, you know, uh, a reasonable living to support my family at the, the level that we, um, you know, wanted to live. Uh, obviously not, it wasn't the, the, it was just my expectation of how I, I wanted to live. So um, the four years happened a lot faster than what I, my original anticipation was. Like I said, six to eight was my original goal. But by no means do I regret getting out at four. I, I serve my country honorably, serve my community honorably. Uh, and so I, you know, no qualms about that. So the transition out is something that I talk about a lot that a lot of people struggle with. I'm, I'm sure there's a correlation between the longer you're in one of those professions, the, the, the more we struggle. But we do have the tendency to identify as that uniform, a cop, a firefighter, a medic. Um, so what was your transition out? And then had you started building up the business side before you transitioned out? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, um, and obviously, you know, I've, you've done a lot of podcasts about, you know, including the transition uh, phase as well. And so my transition was extremely difficult, even though by all accounts, I should have had an easy transition. Uh, my undergrad was in marketing. I was in business prior to law enforcement. I was going back into business after law enforcement, uh, was earning my MBA at the time. Um, and so I, by all accounts, I should have, should have had an easy transition. And really I did professionally. What really jacked me up was all of the things that I didn't, I wasn't aware of. Uh, and that would be like the biological reaction, you know, leaving a world of adrenaline filled, you know, uh, daily activities to the fairly mundane day-to-day uh, -day of the business world, you know, where high stress in law enforcement is totally different than high stress in the business world, you know. And 
I loved that question as I was interviewing for jobs was, um, you know, hey, tell me about a high stress time and how you handled it. Have you ever been in a high stress environment? And I said, you, you really haven't looked at my resume, have you? So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that it was just a lot of fun. But uh, the thing, you know, transition was tough for me. And that's what eventually led me to to found the company uh, Law Enforcement Connect. Yeah, it's just interesting as well. I had a firefighter interview for the city of Orlando. So I was kind of posturing to to get into a different department when I was at my last one. Um, and, you know, it, it, I'm glad I didn't. I, I didn't get picked up. But what they said, and it was, it was so funny, they, the interview panel were like, well, how do you feel like you can contribute to the fire service? And I was like, well, I've been doing this podcast for X amount of years. I'm writing a book at the moment. And that was the wrong answer. They didn't want to hear that. You know, I could see it on their faces. It's like, we just want you to be a blank canvas and shut up and we'll tell you how to think and act and everything. And it's like, you know, I saw that in my last place too. Sometimes when, you know, when when they, they pose questions like that, if you're actually truly doing something, but it's out the box a little bit, it, it doesn't fit the the narrative of what they want. Oh, well, I want to serve. I want to, you know, polish my halogen every day, you know, and it's like, well, if you've actually truly as you said in a high high stress environment that might might not be what they want what they want to hear you know it might just be that you know you had a, a pissed off employee at the the laser printer one day and and you, you know you resolved that but the fact that you <laughs> you know had an armed gunman in front of you it was like too much too much of a, an explanation so it's funny you say that yeah and you know you bring up a really good point here um and you know, you, you've heard it said that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so, um, you know, one of my favorite books that I recommend to a lot of cops is Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement by uh, Dr. Gilmartin. And um, and he talks about this hypervigilance roller coaster. And um, and he even has an illustration in his book about how we as first responders, we live in extremes like we live um, where most people have an equilibrium where they're they get stressed out a little bit, you know, and then they suffer a little bit of a depression, but it's only marginal to, to equilibrium. Whereas law enforcement, we are stretched in the, like the outlier zone, like way high. And then of course our bodies compensate and we go way low. And then we come back the next day at work and way high and then way low. And that for me was, that was the weird part that I wasn't aware of at the time. I, I hadn't read that book. Um, you know, before I left and I wish I had, that's why I recommend it to so many people, because if you're not prepared for what's going to happen, you know, to your body, I mean, your body has to equalize. And so in the world of business, we don't, I mean, yeah, it could be exciting. It can be really exciting. I mean, closing a seven figure deal is, um, extremely, um, it's very an emotional time. I mean, especially the first time you do it, you know, so this is, it, it was thrilling to close seven figure deals, but compared to kicking in a door, serving a high risk warrant, chasing a bad guy down an alley at nighttime, there's just no comparison. So, um, you know, again, that, that transition phase, uh, really jacked me up, but I've learned a lot about it since. So that's the good news. So talk to me about the things you did, right? And the things you did wrong when you first transitioned out. Yeah, great, um, great point and great question here. The things I did right is I networked early. 
Um, I had been preparing and training. I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur, um, just in regards to, um, you know, always looking for opportunities to, to make a little bit of extra money. Uh, and even, even as a police officer, you know, I would buy and sell motorcycles and cars and, you know, just looking for, um, a little bit of extra money really to support, uh, my family and myself, uh, financially. Um, so one of the things that I, I always did was always kept kind of my finger on the pulse of business, you know, the market trends, where opportunities existed, where they, they lied. Uh, and the other thing was, is networking is so crucial and key to transition. I mean, it, a lot of people will, will reference this and they'll say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And to a certain degree, they're a hundred percent right. I mean, they are absolutely right because, um, you can be the smartest person in the world that's unconnected. Nobody will, you know, you'd have to be a real, real genius, a real outstanding individual to get noticed in that case. Um, what I didn't do right was I didn't get help early. Uh, I thought I was going to be a tough guy and I was going to figure it out. And that let me spiral. Um, one of my early mentors and coaches, uh, referred to a, basically a rip in a piece of clothing, a tear in fabric is that if you tear uh, a leather jacket and there's a rip in, in your jacket, if you don't repair and mend that rip, it will eventually uh, continue to deteriorate and ruin your jacket. And so for me, and I've seen this as well with a lot of law enforcement professionals, uh, is that, and first responders actually I have a very close friend who actually was a, a firefighter in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, Canada. And, um, you know, we talk, we talked early, early days about this and, um, it was getting help early, seeking help early. You know, even if you don't think you need it, there's underlying, I mean, just the nature of the job, we see traumas, uh, day in and day out. And so, uh, another thing that I learned was that trauma can come in an acute or chronic manner, basically meaning it can come all at once in a single type of event, or it can occur, uh, in multiple small events over time. And, but as a first responder, just inherent to the job, we see these traumas day in and day out, and we don't realize that they're making an impact, uh, on our minds, on the way that we process information, the way that we see and, and think of reality. And so we need a little bit, if we're going to reintegrate well back into the civilian world, um, a lot of us should seek coaching uh, and counseling early just to make sure that we're thinking clearly that we're seeing and perceiving the world around us, uh, in a healthy manner. And that was something I did not do well. I let that spiral out of control and I went into a pretty severe, uh, depression in a pretty dark place. So, I mean, we hear that so many times, especially one thing we don't think about with the military members, you know, obviously it's not a world that I'm very familiar with, but in the conversations I've had is, they get told where to sleep, where to eat. I mean, everything's provided, you know, it's, it's a kind of all inclusive experience. And then one day they transition out and they have to, you know, pay a mortgage and, you know, go to the store. And I mean, I mean, things that they're totally capable of doing, but they didn't have to think about it. Health insurance, all these different areas. And now they suddenly have to. And I've heard that from a, a, you know, a perspective of transitioning out the military is you have to start understanding and, you know, getting those in order. So that it's not this giant smack in the face when you walk out. And I think, you know, with the responder community is a little element of that. I mean, I, I didn't keep my pension. I used it to, to fund this. Um, but you know, there's, 
you know, you've got your healthcare, you've got your paycheck coming in, and then one one day you don't, and maybe you retired early, and the paycheck isn't enough. And as we know, you know, healthcare is basically zero Cobra for a year, which no one can afford, and then you're out on your own. So, again, even the kind of um, clerical element of our lives, if we're not planning and preparing for that, that can be a huge kind of punch in the face. Um, you know, for any responder that's that's been used to that shift cycle for 10, 20, 30 years of their life. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. You know, and, and one of the things that I consistently see, you know, and I've James, I've been doing this for five years, not officially as LEC. Um, LEC, I launched in March of 2021 um, to provide a platform for coaching and and, um, and career counseling, you know, to, to help cops transition well you know and uh, thrive not just survive but one of the things that I constantly see across all of the people I talk to is that they always say I wish I had started earlier I mean I a handful of people I could count on just a hand or two you know said yeah yeah I started soon enough right uh, I had the end in mind when I started uh, is just not the common narrative that I'm seeing so you know, it's never too early to prepare. The irony is, is I knew that and actually had uh, somebody in my police department who would regularly ask members of my shift and my agency, you know, if you can't come to work tomorrow, what are you going to do? Right. And uh, I heard, it, uh, you know, a buddy of mine from my old department and I, we joke about this all the time. It, it wasn't, you know, like whether you will, like your desire to, like, what if you got into a car crash or a critical incident and you couldn't. And that's what this mentor and coach was telling us uh, was what if you can't, you know, we're in a job where can't is actually a possibility. Um, and so I, I see that often. I talk to people often who weren't preparing along the way and now they can't and they call me and they say, what do I do? I, I didn't prepare. I don't have, you know, a perceivable skill set now. Um, and uh, my response is always, yes, you do. Yeah, absolutely. You do. If you served in a law enforcement capacity, there are skills uh, and leadership traits, uh, technical skill sets, tactical skill sets, all of which are transferable. You just have to speak the language of the industry that you're trying to transition to. And so that's where I help. But not preparing early enough is is a uh, a common theme amongst my clients. And what were the tools that you used to get yourself out of the darkest place? So let me even preface that. So where was the darkest place? Because I mean, that that's, I think, a very important kind of um, picture to paint. But then what were the tools that you used to get out of that place? Yeah, I, you know, I my darkest place um, was not uncommon to a lot of other people. Um, you know, I, I don't even want to quote the statistic that I heard cause I don't know any statistics that can be made up or whatever. Right. But, you know, it was a, it was a shockingly large number, um, percentage wise of first responders in this statistic that had at one point in time had suicidal ideations, you know, considered uh, even if for a glance had even thought across their mind, uh, you know, what if I just wasn't here, right? It'd be better. And maybe, it'd, maybe it would be better. So it was the first time or, uh, one of the first times I started thinking that way that I knew I needed help. Um, and that's where the tough guy mentality kind of was like, okay, John, like 
maybe you got to table this. Maybe you do need to go talk to somebody. And that's where, um, where I reached out. And, you know, and at that point in my career, I was actually in Canada. I was in a mining town in Northern Alberta, Canada. And I reached out to a local counselor who was, uh, just available. And so I used, um, my, um, employee assistant program, which I think is really important to, to know that is out there. Um, programs like this exist, you know, and everything from financial distress to, uh, relationship distress to mental health issues like the one that I was having, there are, um, and I wasn't working for a law enforcement agency. Even I was working for, you know, a big corporate, uh, entity at the time. But I reached out to uh, a local counselor who was able to walk me through some steps to get me back headed towards the right path. And it's, I mean, no lie, it's been a journey back since. Well, I think one of the things I hear about EAP, obviously, there are some people that are very fortunate and they have the right person and, you know, beautiful. But there are many, many people who, especially in the first responder and military space, well, I guess it would be more first responder because there's not EAP in the military, I don't believe. It's a different kind of branch. But um they find themselves in what one would describe as not a culturally competent counselor. And in many, many, many stories I've heard, it actually made it worse, not better. So was it luck or had you actually been able to kind of figure out how to find the right kind of person to sit in front of? No, that's a fair point. My counselor was horrible. Uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't, she was not uh, competent, didn't, did not speak the language of law enforcement or first responder, did not know where I was coming from. Uh, and actually really, um, initially caused more harm than good. I mean, it made me really, um, second guess what, uh, why I was even going to her. Um, but maybe it was just my stubborn nature that, you know, kept me going back. And ultimately I reconciled, uh, I was fortunate. I was able to reconcile in my mind that why would I expect her to understand she had never been in a first, she was never, she didn't claim to be a first responder advocate or a first responder counselor. She didn't specialize in that. Uh, and so I was expecting her to speak my language with actually no logical reason why she should be able to. So I changed, um, like I said, fortunately for me, I was able to change my mentality and change my expectation of her um, because I was pretty damn determined to, to get healthy again because I was at a point where I didn't even I didn't like my the way that I was I didn't like myself uh and I just knew that I didn't want to be there now you made a good point about um the statistics just and I was thinking about you as a SWAT operator in all the gear all the training that you're given all the fitness standards all the um you know the tactical training you know, covering each other and clearing rooms and we spend so much money on protecting ourselves against someone else but when you think about how much effort and time and money is invested in protecting ourselves against ourselves it's kind of glaring really you know what i mean and then i think that's so sad because i mean in your particular story you were out the first responder profession so the corporate setting wouldn't probably think about putting their employee in front of a culturally competent counselor however the ap is usually a city or county-wide you know um tool uh but so so many of our responders out there do find themselves in front of this, the the same person and yet as we just said you know there'll be bear cats and you know tactical gear and you know high power rifles for capturing someone or killing someone and then absolute 
terrible kind of you know resources when it comes to to self care. So on the other side now in the corporate space, when you look back, what should have been there? Not so much in the in the corporate, but in your actual department. Like, what do we need to give these firefighters and police officers as far as the resources um, for self protection? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, and. I'm not sure that I have a good answer for you, James, because I was already gone and I didn't go through the EAP with the department. I went through the EAP of my corporate, uh, you know, my corporate employer at the time. Um, and I really didn't do myself any, any justice and kind of, to, uh, to backtrack here, you know, I left in 2015. I didn't get help for over 12 months after the fact I tried to muscle through it, you know, and really rely on, uh, the tough guy mentality of like, I'll figure it out. I got it. You know, there's, I don't have a problem. Right. Um, and so, you know, to be fair, I moved, like I mentioned, I moved to a mining town in Northern Alberta, Canada, which was, um, you know, pretty isolated from everywhere else. Um, I mean, in Canada, it's known to be that, um, and it's known to be isolated and, I just, I had the opportunity to go, I could either do virtual. I just didn't want to do virtual. I wanted to speak to somebody, uh, in person. And so, you know, for, I guess by all accounts, I feel kind of blessed that there was anybody available to, to walk me out of this. And, uh, I think a professional counselor, um, any professional counselor, uh, is better than no professional counselor. Uh, to a certain degree, like you said, some people have had bad experiences that made it worse because they didn't understand where they're coming from. Uh, and that would be obviously the caveat to that. But um, I just always think back towards like even pro athletes have coaches, right? Why should we have a different mentality from corporate America or first responders or the military? I mean, you know, some of our, you know, quote unquote idols, right? Uh, you know, they they're coached at the highest level of performance in their profession. Why not mirror that to ours? But absolutely, there should be specific first responder coaches and counselors available to uh, to the community. Absolutely. So you pulled yourself out of this, you know, this hole probably more so from your own sheer, you know, determination than than resources from the outside. Um, what made you start realizing that there was a, a kind of void when it came to mentoring responders for them to make a transition, not only obviously mentally, but more, more specifically to find another tribe, find another purpose, another business to transition into? Yeah. Um, you know, I just saw a gap. Uh, and so when I started looking for, you know, I kind of like, like you mentioned, I was coming out of a dark place and I was looking for resources um, and I was looking for opportunities to really improve myself. And uh, I wanted to perform at a high level and just to identify, you know, I think one of the problems, identify basically um, with my internal passions, right? What would make me happy again? What would get me excited to go to work again? You know, and that's part of the identity crisis that I'm sure we could talk for days about. Um, as far as, you know, military first responders and even, uh, professional athletes all have, uh, somewhat of an identity crisis or could potentially have an identity crisis because that's who they are. That's what they identify as. Um, I'm a, I'm a police officer named John. No, I'm John. Who's a police officer, right? Uh, flip the verbiage. But, um, 
where I found a gap and where I struggled uh, also was to find a purpose after law enforcement. And so um, I decided to start digging and diving and couldn't find many resources uh, as far as how do I translate my skill set from my law enforcement career? What does that sound like? What does that look like? And then how do I eventually convert that to a marketable commercial skill set that corporate uh, a corporate entity uh, or a, a business entity, for example, uh, might be interested in, right? Regardless of industry, regardless of if it's healthcare, you know, a nonprofit or for profit, doesn't matter. Um, you know, what's the language of that industry and how do you connect one to the next? So talk to me about it. <laughs> Educate us. Yeah. So essentially that's where my passion project started. And I started interviewing. I started uh, researching. I started uh, actually a doctorate program surrounding this concept, uh, a doctorate of business administration and strategic management. Uh, I started, I completed a year and a half and actually stopped the doctorate program in order to focus on helping more cops uh, through Law Enforcement Connect, my LLC that I started. Um, and so essentially the gap was, um, the transition, right? How, what, what do you do when you leave law enforcement, regardless of if it's five years of service or 30 years of service, the one consistency, the one inevitable is that all of us will inevitably transition. We will all leave service at one point or, or another. And so when you do choose to leave service, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, um, you should know what that skill set that you just learned and earned as a first responder, what that looks like and how to convert those into the language of the next industry that you're pursuing. Um, and so through the doctorate and then through um, also a certificate that I completed through uh, Cornell University in human resource management. Uh, through an additional training as well. I mean, this is, you know, uh, a work in progress, obviously I'm learning every day, but, um, you know, what I was able to, to do was convert to understand the language of both, right? I understand the language of corporate America, for example. I also understand the language of law enforcement. And so a lot of times my clients, they call and they say either, I don't know what to do next, or I don't know how to convert. I know what I want to do next. I just don't know how to convert my law enforcement experience to, um, to the next chapter, basically. Right. Um, look, I mean, 28 years of service, uh, you know, 10 years of SWAT, 12 years of hazmat, you know, uh, years as a drug recognition expert, right. Uh, corporate America is impressed, but they just don't care because it doesn't, uh, add value to their, um, organization and it doesn't generate revenue and profits for them. So, um, by determining how it translates is how I help my clients. Well, that's what I see in the fire service specifically. Um, you know, if you take us based on our skill sets, then, you know, how, how can cutting someone out of a car cross over into the corporate world? How can, you know, laddering a building and cutting a roof or make an entry through a window, you know, pay over? So what you end up seeing is, a lot of times people will then go to a fire academy and do exactly the same thing they were doing before. But, you know, that's not a very, uh, you know, it's not known for its high pay and you're still beating the body up even more. Now, one good thing, at least you're going to bed at night, which is huge. But um, talk to me about 
the kind of the misunderstanding that our skill set, same in the military, that your skill set as a SEAL or a firefighter or a police officer isn't transferable. And, you know, and if you have any examples of, of people that have come from one field that are very successful in a different one now. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I think there's that old mantra uh, or that old saying that um, success is when opportunity and preparation meet. Uh, and so understanding what you're doing today, um, like, for example, I just I spoke to a uh, trooper up northeast in, in the Massachusetts area. Uh, he was a Massachusetts state trooper for 28 years. And um, and then he focused for the last half of his career or so uh, on a specialty. And that specialty translated after his retirement into something that uh, he now does in private practice. And he is, you know, a subject matter expert in that area. And he does very well for himself now. But that took years of preparation, years of practice. Uh, he developed a competency in a specific area. Um, and similarly, you know, there's um, another close friend of mine from in the agency that I served with who focused on the human resource side of things. Uh, that's what their focus was on. Uh, they focused on the human resource side of things while they were in. Uh, they dealt with human resource for the city itself. And then they transferred out and are now a senior executive as a, a human resource executive for, you know, corporate America. So these are things that, uh, again, the consistency here or the correlation here is that preparation, obviously, practicing before it's time to actually leave uh, will provide that success later on. But translating, uh, to get back to this, translating a skill set from one to the other, there are commonalities, absolutely. And soft skills and hard skills, technical skills, absolutely transfer over. But it does, uh, it is determined uh, how you translate it based on the industry that you want to go to. Uh, like, but leadership, in it, for example, is a universal skill set. I mean, everyone understands what leadership looks like, uh, whether it's in law enforcement, the military, or corporate America. So that's one thing that we can absolutely. Um, convert from a first responder perspective um, back to uh, your next industry of, of preference. Well, another thing that seems to, you know, make me think about the, the, the comparable skills or, or the assets that we bring from the fire service, for example, is we're jack of all trades, master of none. So you will arrive on a scene and literally have to problem solve, ultimately maybe to even save a life. Um, how do how do we take those soft skills and then you know show a corporate employer how that can be applicable because it's just not something that we think of i think you know a lot in in the fire service but when you think that ultimately people call you know push three numbers on a phone and a bunch of us show up and we are expected to mitigate a child stuck down a, a well or a plane that flew into a tree or you know you name it we have to figure it out to me that is a huge um a huge skill set that would be an absolute asset to a company, but it's, it's as you said, the language to translate one to the other. Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point here. And, you know, a lot of the transferable skill sets really come back to critical thinking, the ability to think on our feet, right? The ability to perform under stress. Um, you know, leading is a human skill. Uh, you, you manage processes, you lead people, right? 
And so if we can show in on paper, I mean, one thing that we do really well as police officers is we articulate in report form. I mean, we've even got a class uh, called advanced report writing. Uh, and so we have the ability to articulate what we want to communicate uh, in a very concise and strategic manner to serve uh, a certain end goal, and that's to bring facts to life, right? This is what I saw. This is what happened. This is the testimony of this person, right? And so we know uh, inherently, we know what uh, that that we're leaders. Um, anytime you arrive on scene, I mean, the first level of of um, force is officer safety. So, or uh, officer safety is officer presence. So, just by showing up, you're exhibiting some level of um, you know authority on scene, and so. The ability really to translate that, uh, the leadership, the critical thinking, uh, and then, you know, all of the other human skills onto paper, it takes a, uh, it takes a professional for sure. Um, I've seen a lot of cops who translate their own resume, um, and they just don't get the desired end result oftentimes that they want because they just don't speak the language. And I'll go back to the language of the industry you're, per, you know, you're pursuing. Um, you got to speak the language and that's where coaching comes in to play. God, whether it's me or somebody else, find a coach who understands the language of both mentorships, uh, and networking is key. Use, use LinkedIn as a resource, obviously. But. Now, what about companies? Are there, are there companies or types of industries that are actively looking for first responders the way there's some, some are looking for veterans? I mean, police and fire are a perfect example of that. Yeah, there's there's not the initiative to hire first responders the same way that there's an initiative to hire uh, the military. Um, there are companies out there, veteran service organizations, uh, and you know companies that are out there that focus on and have an initiative to hire X amount of military vets. Uh, unfortunately, there's just not that many um, that focus on hiring uh, first responders. There's just at this point in time, there's just not. And we've actually, I've heard it said this way, is that um, law enforcement is kind of in a Vietnam-esque era right now where we're not really broadcasting our service uh, publicly. We kind of shy away from telling people what we do. And uh, even society is a little bit demonizing or has been demonizing uh, our profession for the last several years because it's either misunderstood um, or they don't, uh, they don't decipher what the true nature of our job is, uh, or simply just don't appreciate it. So, um, but we're poised. I mean, this is a, a potential opportunity for us to really, um, not to be cliche, but kind of rise out of the ashes here and, and show the value, start, you know, showing value towards corporate America and say, look, these are the, the hard skills and the soft skills that we bring, you know, you can train. We, we hear all the time, uh, or I, I hear all the time, you know, we, we hire for attitude and train for skills and what better place to, to really find somebody who you want to hire for competency or attitude or ability or grit or resilience, you know, than a first responder who's been proven time, time again on the road. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that then, so talk to me about the genesis of Law Enforcement Direct and what you offer. Yeah. So 
LEC as a company is um, we are building, we're uh, day in and day out, we're building a platform to support cops in career transition. Um, we want to change and bring visibility to the, uh, the value that first responders and law enforcement bring to corporate America. All of these skill sets that we've talked about today um, aren't visible to m- much of corporate America and primarily because they just don't understand the nature of our job. They don't understand the, the day in and day out, you know, the typical tasks that we're uh, assigned to do or the leadership traits that we possess just by, again, being the professional uh, in a first responder capacity. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to bring visibility to the value of law enforcement uh, and obviously first responders as a whole. Um, but Law Enforcement Connect is uh, poised to and is prepared to and currently has uh, clients who utilize our services for coaching, uh, for translating their skill sets. Uh, for uh, even just mentorship of and q and I mean, question and answer is a big thing, right? Is this something that, based on my skill set and what I've done, right, what do you think I'm capable and competent of doing? And uh, I typically don't give hard answers to that question, uh, primarily because I don't know what your internal passions and desires are. I don't know where you want to be in five years. I know where I want to be in five years, but, you know, you might – uh, want to be somewhere that I have no desire of going. Right. So, um, we help coach and mentor and guide, uh, law enforcement professionals in a manner that would be, uh, allow them to thrive in a, and their next career. And again, I mean, whether it's after five or 30, you mentioned earlier that, um, you get different, you gain different experience and you gain different levels of uh, access to experience by staying in the job a longer period of time uh, over. So five would look different than a 30 year veteran. Uh, And that's obviously that's true. And that's consistent across any industry that's consistent across the fire side, the law enforcement side that's consistent across human resources, industrial manufacturing, uh, you know, any industry we can go on and on, but uh, yeah, the, and different levels of experience do merit different opportunities uh, that you would rate at a at the next level of of your profession. Well, I want to apologize. I called it uh, law enforcement direct, not connect. So let me uh, correct myself there. <laughs> so, where can people find law enforcement co- uh, connect online? Yeah, it's lawenforcementconnect.com, and we also have uh, a LinkedIn page, Law Enforcement Connect. Brilliant. Well, John, I'd love to go to some closing questions before I let you go. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah. And so I did mention uh, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement uh, by Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. There's uh, two other books that I'd like to recommend. One is Military Career Transition, Insights from the Employer Side of the Desk. By William E. Kiefer. Uh, he goes by Bill. That is an excellent book that is uh, specific towards law enforcement, uh, or sorry, specific towards military, but there's a lot of good lessons uh, to be learned and, and a lot of good takeaways to be learned. Um, that uh, That's totally, you don't have to be in the military to get the takeaways here. 
Uh, the, the verbiage, the lingo, the jargon might be a little bit slightly different, but uh, it is uh, slightly different, but it, they're still really good uh, lessons learned. The other book is uh, The Transition Mission, and that is by Herb Thompson. Um, full disclosure, both are, were, uh, are Army veterans, uh, and both are Board of Advisor members to Law Enforcement Connect. Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah, because you've got quite a, um, a broad spectrum of people on your board. Yeah, so my board, um, you know, it, it consists actually of uh, a, a broad variety. I mean, I'm looking full scope for solutions to the problem. And uh, it doesn't help me to just have a bunch of people with similar experiences or mentalities and just yes men to me. Um, I want to create a solution that actually makes a difference to our community. And so I've got a PhD professor. I've got a former Green Beret. Uh, I've got um, somebody who uh, one of my board members was actually a vice president of human resources for 22 years at a major organization, major corporate America organization. A former F-18 pilot, a former Air Force veteran who uh, now is a leadership coach, and a former law enforcement professional, lieutenant, uh, medically retired lieutenant um, from out west. So, yeah, absolutely. We, we're trying to, uh, trying to keep everything in perspective and providing solutions that actually make a difference, not just something to put to market. If that makes sense. No, it does. And I think having all those different perspectives, you know, and this is what the show is about, getting outside the box. It's not firefighters every episode. And that's deliberate. I love firefighters, but you know, there's so many solutions outside our profession as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what about a movie and or documentary that you love? <laughs> um a movie that I love oh man, this is gonna be bad. But I'm I'm a huge uh, kind of that dumb humor type. I mean, I love the dumb and dumbers and like the anchormans and, you know, I want something that's just really, really stupid, funny, you know, doesn't make any sense. Um, but big fan of Will Ferrell, big fan of, um, like Jim Carrey movies and stuff like that. Uh, I actually don't watch much TV, but a documentary that I love watching with my kids is the national geographic, uh, like the wild earth type series beautiful all right next question if there is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world absolutely uh <laughs> james you've had hundreds of episodes so i'm not sure if they've already been on this uh show or not but i would absolutely recommend um bill Kiefer. uh he like i, I mentioned before he he's an army veteran uh, but also served on the employer side, uh, the corporate America side as a senior vice president of human resources. So he would be an excellent contributor to the show. Uh, and another one would be um, Herb Thompson. And he's um, a former U.S. Army drill, drill sergeant and Green Beret. And now he works in corporate America, earned his uh, MBA from Cornell University and um, is now in corporate America world. And both of them just provide a wealth of knowledge as far as military uh, and first responder career transition. Beautiful. Sound like great suggestions. Thank you. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you online, what do you do to decompress when you're not forging a path in your own or someone else's career? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty regimented. Um, my decompression, you know, I've, I've mentioned, uh, before, you know, I have a nine to five, um, and which is not a nine to five. I mean, it's a 12 to 14 a day, you know, but, uh, I do have a day shift and I do have a night shift in LEC. Uh, and then, you know, I make it a point to, and for decompression, I make it a point to continue reading. Uh, I enjoy reading, and I enjoy working out. So Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, working out at the gym, um, doing some cross-functional training, stuff like that. So that's how I uh, keep my sanity amongst uh, about me now. Now, was that something that you found around the time you were in your lowest point? Were those some of the tools that helped as well? You know, what's funny is uh, Jiu-Jitsu was something I started back in the mid-2000s. Um, I actually helped to uh, start and run several MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, gyms in the Metro Atlanta area before I became a cop uh, while I was still in college. Um, and so Jiu-Jitsu, I've, I've had a history of. And working out, uh, just fitness and athletics in general, uh, have always been a part of my life. But the irony is, is I had stopped working out when I was at my lowest. I just didn't really want to go or do anything. I didn't want to go anywhere. I sat at the house, you know, isolated myself, you know. Um, and so one of the, the keys to me getting better was um, getting back in the gym. And so when, once I got back in the gym and anytime um, I go through, you know, kind of a dark time or a dark passage of time, uh, I evaluate that. That's my first a, you know, checkbox, if you will, on my to-do list is, okay, am I working out consistently? Am I not? How's my diet? You know, is that something that, um, is it something that is affecting my mood? Right. And oftentimes it actually is, is what I've found. Brilliant. Yeah. I think it's an important thing. I mean, you, you talked about the counseling, but I think I see the same thing over and over again with people. It's community, it's nature, it's exercise, it's, you know, family. So, uh, these, these kind of, common themes peer their head out over and over again when I ask that question. Absolutely. You know, one other thing that uh, you actually just made me think about when you said the nature comment is uh, uh, previously, before I moved to Canada, I was hiking the Appalachian Trail quite a bit, um, you know, just getting out in nature and doing one or two day hikes, three day hikes, whatever, uh, from gap to gap on the trail. And um, my brother and I would, would do that often as a pair and it was just uh, always was astonishing to me the mental clarity that I gained while I was out in nature. Uh, and that's something that actually, since I've moved back to the metro Atlanta area, closer to the, the Appalachian Trail head, you know, where it starts at Springer Mountain up in Georgia is something I'm really excited to get back into is hiking that trail again. Beautiful. That's great to hear. Thank you. Um, all right. So people listening, you mentioned where uh, Law Enforcement Connect is. How can they reach out to you personally online? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, if there's anything I can do for you, my name is John Saporsky. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my email address is john at lawenforcementconnect.com. Brilliant. Well, John, I want to say thank you so much. For people listening, if there was any overlap at all, we had to do this into two parts. Um, yeah, you know, there was a lot of conflicts going on, people drilling in my house, that kind of thing. So, uh, but I appreciate first of your patience for getting this interview done. And secondly, just taking the time to come on and tell your story today. James, I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, we're here to uh, support our community, our first responder brothers and sisters. And uh, ultimately just to make an impact uh, so that other people can thrive in their next career.